Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, with a message titled, Watch and Pray. So turning your Bibles to Matthew 26, 36 to 46, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is well known. While Jesus prays, his disciples sleep. You know, a great struggle is going on which exhausts the disciples, and it is Jesus' most trying hour. His sorrow and distress and anguish are overwhelming. The word Gethsemane means the oil press. The place where Jesus was praying was an olive grove. It contained a press, an olive press, a place where the olives were crushed and produced oil. It's a fitting location where Jesus would be hard-pressed awaiting the crucifixion. Matthew 26, verse 36 says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. You know, Jesus and his disciples had just finished eating the Passover meal. They leave the walled city of Jerusalem. They go to the eastern gate. They go down the pathway into the Kidron Valley. They go to a place where the road divides into three branches, and while each branch leads to the Mount of Olives, it's a hillside covered with olive trees. Jesus enters Gethsemane most likely because the owner of this olive grove and press had made this place available to Jesus. No doubt, Jesus had been there before. That's the reason Judas was so easily able to find him. He knew where Jesus would be. So Jesus has come to this place to pray, and we're not surprised because the gospel writers make much of the fact that Jesus often sought a private place to pray. So go back to Matthew 6, verse 6. Jesus teaches that when we pray, we ought to go into our room, shut the door, meaning we ought to find a private place to pray, away from prying eyes and free from making our praying into a show. Matthew 14, 23 says, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. See, I want us to imagine the Son of God as the man who would often seek out a quiet and private place to pray. Luke 5, 16 simply says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 6, verse 12, in those days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. We know that the prayer that has become known as the Lord's Prayer came about as a result of the disciples observing the pattern in Jesus. Luke 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And so Jesus prayed often in private, but also to instruct those around him. And so if we had followed the life of Jesus, we would expect that after the Passover meal and then on the very verge of his arrest, that he would look for a secluded place to pray. And he goes to Gethsemane, the place of the olive press. So why that place? Well, John tells us in his gospel, John 18, verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And there's a pattern. It shouldn't surprise us then that he told his disciples to sit in one place while he went somewhere else. So stop here and consider the scene. You know, many of us are quite accustomed to praying in a group, and it's really quite appropriate. I mean, at the outset, people suggest, you know, prayer requests, and then the entire group prays. But there's also a time when people are together when it's necessary for each person in the group to find a private place, even while there are others around. 
That kind of prayer often buoys us and encourages us in private prayers between us and the Father. But Jesus has something unique in mind here. Matthew 26, verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Well, the two sons of Zebedee are James and John. So these three men are Jesus' core group. Mark 5 tells us when Jesus healed the daughter of the synagogue ruler, his name was Jairus. Verse 37 tells us that he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. And when Jesus went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, again, it was only those three men that were allowed to follow him. And now he's about to enter into his time of prayer, and it's only these three men that accompany him to a private place. And why? Well, because within his circle of disciples, Jesus was raising them up as leaders of the group. And after he's gone, these men will be called upon to give direction to all the apostles who will give direction to the entire church. So it seems natural here at this extreme moment that he would call on the three men to be with him. And then in their presence, Matthew tells us that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. He's, he's in anguish. It's so important to ask why that's so. You know, I've sometimes, as I've taught on the matter of Gethsemane, compared the death of Jesus to the death of Socrates. I mean, both men were falsely convicted and condemned to death. But the glaring difference between Socrates is that Socrates accepted his death with peace, even gladness, while Jesus was in anguish. It was Martin Luther who went so far as to say that no one ever died with such anguish as Jesus. And before we answer the question as to why that's so, we need to admit to the matter that it is so. Jesus did not face death peacefully and with a sense of calm, but rather with great torment of soul. This is unmistakable, and it must be faced. For we do nothing to understand the mindset of Christ's sufferings if we don't acknowledge that truth. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, it says, and then hear this, with loud cries and tears. See, every once in a while, I, I see an older picture of Jesus praying. He's kneeling. His, his face looks completely serene. And we mustn't picture Jesus like that here. I can only imagine the stunned emotions of Peter, James, and John as they look on Jesus praying, and he's making cries of anguish, and they see he will not be quieted. He's writhing in obvious agony. Is this Jesus? How could that sense of peace that's befitting a holy man of God be so gone at this moment? How is it that nothing can be said to calm his troubled soul? So we continue to read verses 38 and 39. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, it is true that a great many faithful followers of Christ will be shocked by this scene. We become accustomed to defending the deity of Jesus, making the case that he really is truly God. And it's right that we should do that. But the temptation is always there, that in defending his deity, that we forget to defend the full humanity of Jesus, the extremity to which he was subjected. See, he wants the three to remain within sight of him. They're to watch with him meaning that they're going to be needed to encourage him as the burden he's feeling is growing ever more extreme. I mean, to face this alone is more than we can even imagine. 
And so he moves away from them, but still close enough so that they can keep their eyes on him. And he doesn't pray quietly. He's loudly calling out to the Father. If it be possible, he prays. Is it possible that there might be another pathway for me to travel? I mean, are you shocked to hear such a prayer? I mean, perhaps we should be. I mean, after all, Jesus has already taught his disciples. We find this in Matthew 20, verse 28, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And then the key words, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We also know John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his Son. I mean, Jesus came as an act of love from the Father to give his life as a ransom for many. So the words, if it be possible, it strikes us as strange. I mean, furthermore, the words themselves are a first-class conditional clause, which assumes that it is possible. I mean, Jesus is affirming the Father's omnipotence, that is, his power to do all things. But notice that while he does not wish to suffer in this way, and that while he affirms that all things are possible, at the very same breath he submits Not to what's possible, but according to the will of the Father. Nevertheless, not as I will. Are we, as we read these words, hearing the conflict between the will of the Son and the will of the Father? No, I don't think so. What we're hearing is the human will of Jesus who does not wish to suffer in the way that is set out before him. Notice it's very clear from this text that Jesus is not praying that the cross be removed from him. Did you notice that? Rather, he says, take this cup from me. So very difficult to drink it. What does that mean? Clearly, Jesus is referring to an Old Testament image. And in that image, it's found in several places. But for the sake of brevity, let me cite just one example. Jeremiah 25, 15 to 16. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword I am sending among them. See, notice in that passage, God is about to pronounce judgment on the nations and the cup is the cup of God's wrath. In Gethsemane, the Father's hand is extended towards the Son and the Father says, drink the cup of my wrath. There is perhaps no scripture more readily quoted or memorized than John 3.16. But sometimes, the things we think we know lose our attention. Familiarity can erode our appreciation. If you be needing a reminder of the wonderful promise held in this verse, then you'll be pleased to hear that Dr. John Newfeld has endeavored to refresh, deepen, and renew us in this simple yet profound message of God's love in his new five-message series called John 3.16. Dr. John expertly unpacks each element of this verse and applies it to the grand perspective of God's eternal plan for his glory. Because the saving message of the gospel is central to this verse, we wanted to make this CD series available to everyone this month for free. So request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. There's an image that we must grasp. Jesus is in great anguish. His soul is alarmed and he cries out. 
The father has extended a cup and he calls for his only beloved son to drink it. It was the cup of the Lord's anger, his righteous anger for every sin that was committed against him and his holy laws. I have to imagine, Jesus, that while on earth, he had never experienced anything other than the Father's pleasure, his smile of approval, and now this, this cup. He's horrified, not by the acts of indignity that men will bring against him, but rather because he is the chosen sin-bearer. See, in our day, there have been many who deny the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus. So let me break those words down. The word atonement means that an offering is given. It's a fit payment to take away our sins. Jesus is the payment for our sins. So the word substitutionary means that his life is substituted for ours. But the word penal means that God the Father demanded a penalty for our sins. Now, is that view biblical? Well, yes, it is. Listen to the words of Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now listen to this. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yeah. He, the servant of God, the Messiah, was crushed for us, for our iniquities. Upon him was chastisement, says Isaiah. Now, chastisement, that refers to punishment. Upon him was poured out the punishment we deserved, and this brought us peace. We should have borne the chastisement, the rightful punishment for our sins, but instead he was substituted for us. He was punished, and we were set free. We've all gone astray like foolish sheep. We've lost our way. And in response, the Lord that is the Father laid on the Son the iniquity of us, his people. Paul would later say the same thing. He would call Jesus on the cross a propitiation, or in contemporary English, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. And so to be clear, this is the reason for Christ's agony in Gethsemane. He was about to bear up under the righteous anger of the Father. So consider two common objections to this clear biblical teaching. One objection is, this makes the father a cosmic child abuser. Some say that. They say any parent that pours out wrath to that degree on their child, that's an abuser. But listen, let me respond. This critique falls short of understanding that we're not speaking of a human father. We're speaking of God the Father. He's not only the Father, he is the creator of all things, and he's also the righteous judge before whom all humanity must stand. And the one who sees his son as the object of his eternal delight, so he loved the world so much that he offered up his son, this is not child abuse. It's the gospel. Only Jesus, only the Son can atone for sins. Another objection is one of confusion. I remember having this conversation with an Indian pastor while I was in India. He said he'd been reading about all the objections to the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus, and he was confused. And so he asked me, do you believe that the Father poured out his wrath onto the Son on the cross? And I said to him, if the Son didn't bear the wrath of the Father on your behalf, if that didn't take place, then the only one left to bear the wrath of God for your sins is you. For sin must be atoned for. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so let's return to Jesus in Gethsemane. Remember, 
He's not only praying, but he's praying with loud cries and tears. Father, if it's possible, take the cup of your wrath from me. But even as I stare at the terror of drinking this cup, I would prefer your will as opposed to my revulsion of this necessary sacrifice. See, that's what's going on in Gethsemane. Now to verses 40 and 41. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, many Bible teachers you know, believe that by this time, about an hour had transpired, and by Jesus' standards, one hour of prayer was a short time. But in that hour, Peter, James, and John had fallen asleep. And notice these men, who were fishermen. They had often been awake all night. That wouldn't have been a new experience for them. But lest we be too critical of them here, let's remember that the intensity of emotion that they witnessed in Jesus, that had a considerable effect on them. They watched Jesus, no doubt, face down, pleading with the Father in such a way that they themselves must have felt their own strength leaving them. Luke tells us that the matter was so difficult for Jesus, the angels were sent to strengthen him. Well, we don't know if the the three men witnessed that or whether, as the gospel writers tell us, that this prayer was so intense that the blood vessels in his forehead were breaking and clods of blood were falling to the ground. You know, did they see that? And were they emotionally exhausted by what they were watching? Others have suggested that the level of spiritual warfare at this moment was so great that the men were simply overwhelmed. And so at least from my vantage point, I offer no condemnation of these three men. I think I would have crumbled long before they did. But nonetheless, Jesus is left alone. The three men he so desperately wanted to stand with him were incapable of doing just that. At one point, he goes to them and he says to Peter, could you not stay awake for one hour? And then he adds two words. And the first is that prayer at this moment was so imperative as they should pray that they might not enter into temptation. Now, I suspect that was a surprise to Peter and to the other two men. I mean, what temptation would they fall into? What's going on? But as we know, in just a short while, they would all deny him and run away. So the hour of their greatest temptation was before them. Jesus would overcome the temptation to reject the Father's cup. But Peter and the others would fall to their great temptation. Now, please, let's think about this for a moment. This is not just experienced by the disciples. It's your temptation as well, my dear listener. There are thousands of ways of denying our Savior. I mean, your job might demand it, or government policies might demand it. The pressure of peers might demand it. Take time and recognize that you too are under pressure and that you have failed. Also recognize that Jesus tells them that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit refers to the relationship that we have with God. As such, we in our spirits, if we're born again, we long for a greater and richer relationship with God. But the flesh, the lower nature, that habitual pattern in ourselves that seeks our own glory rather than the glory of God, it's always at play. The flesh will quickly abandon God and seek self-preservation. Pray more, says Jesus. Pray with intensity, for unless God helps you, you're going to fall. Now to verses 42 to 46. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words. 
Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. See, I want you to notice that Matthew tells us that Jesus on three occasions prayed the same thing. And here I think there's a lesson. Sometimes, especially around important things, it's necessary to continue to pray the same prayer over and again. For we can pray a matter through and still have not yet come to the place where we have the power to prevail. Look, Jesus, the Son of God, knew that about himself. He who had never sinned took the temptation to flee from doing the Father's will as a real temptation. And so he returned to the same prayer, not once, but on three occasions. If even Jesus needed such intensity of praying, do we not also need to learn from that? I think that Jesus here shows us the way. Tell the Father often that your redeemed spirit is willing to go all the way to death for the glory of God. But tell him that you fear that you will give way to your flesh. Pray, Lord, let my passion be for the glory of God. And may it be greater than the flesh's desire to satisfy my own pleasures. Don't let me in the greatest hours of my temptation ever give in to that which is expedient but rather to that which brings you glory. The disciples are exhausted. They sleep until the very moment when Judas leads the mob to arrest Jesus. And that moment, having frittered away the opportunity to pray, they face the greatest hour of their temptation, and they fail. But Jesus, our Passover lamb, does not fail. Indeed, even while we fail, his victory in that hour is our victory, for he did it for us. Praise God. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, because I think this goes through some of our minds, what's going on here with Jesus? Should we not have expected him to march toward the cross with confidence? Yeah, Ben, thank you for that excellent question. I I think at all times we have to continue to remember that um, Jesus was constantly tempted, uh, that Jesus was always dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God to continue to give him victory. Had he not spent the amount of time that he did in prayer, he would have failed because he's truly our Savior. But of course, he can't fail because he's also our God. So, I mean, there's one of the great conundrums. But remember this, that Jesus depended upon the Father to gain the victory in his prayer life and in the actions that he took after that. That's a wonderful lesson. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Death and Resurrection of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. It's an absolute honor to share that this month, Our friends at Laugh Again are celebrating their 10th anniversary. A decade of wisdom-packed stories knit together with family-friendly humor that always directs hearts and eyes back to Jesus. If you haven't already, head over to laughagain.ca and dive into the wide array of resources available, all which provide encouragement in your walk with Jesus. Tune in to Phil's popular Take 5 series, or check out resources like Four Minutes for Frazzled Families, a devotional booklet for the whole family. 
Visit laughagain.ca and when you're there, consider blessing Laugh Again with a financial gift to help pave the way for 10 more years of sharing hope and joy in your walk with Jesus.